You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at VisitWilliamsburg.com. We're back with another episode of the Woodsman Podcast. You ever get that feeling sometimes, even though it's the beginning of March, that you're still in March, you're still somehow born to hunt and forced to work? I swear that's how I've been feeling. I mean, it's just so much going through my mind of things I want to get done, things I'd like to be doing, scouting, working, blah, 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 blah. And it just seems like there's not enough hours in the day to make it happen. And I'm sure plenty of you know what that's like, too. Past week, we went to the K&K uh, Build-A-Buck Workshop, and that's in Richland, PA. They actually uh, they do it in Myerstown. So big shout-out to those guys. It's been an annual meeting for them uh, for years now. I think Duane told me that they were going on – they're going over 20 years that they've had this, this annual meeting, and they talk about food plots and, you know, talk about uh, – you know, the feeds and different systems that they sell and, you know, have some different speakers come in over the years. And it's been a great meeting. And uh, they have the uh, the big, uh, the Voters' Choice Biggest Buck Awards. And since they didn't have their meeting in 21, 2021 because of COVID, they, uh, they postponed this year. They had uh, the biggest buck from the 2020 season or the 2021 season. So fortunately for me, I had two opportunities because, as I told you guys earlier in the year, um, I couldn't kill a buck to save my life in 2021. But uh, I was still able to be, uh, you know, patting myself on the back and feeling all good about myself going to that meeting and bringing my buck from 20. So that was uh, that was cool to share that deer with everybody there and, and talk deer and deer hunting with a whole bunch of other people that were like-minded one of those people I got to talk with was uh, Tad Dalgowitz. Now, Tad is, uh, Tad is, oh, he's just one of those guys that, you ever meet somebody who just seems like they are just super over happy and passionate about life and all that they're doing? Like, when you're around Tad and you're talking with him and you're talking food plots and hunting and stuff like this, like, you can just tell he's got this driving passion to learn more and to do his best to share it with everybody else around him. And, uh, you know, having the opportunity to talk with him, uh, I kind of roped him into being this week's guest for our uh, our podcast here. And Tad is, uh, you're going to notice that Tad has his hands in a lot of different avenues. So he's been working with the Whitetail Institute uh, for, I think he said, over 20 years. 
and he's been a spokesperson, and that's that's kind of how he got involved at that K&K Build-A-Buck workshop meeting is he speaks on behalf of uh, Whitetail Institute and their products and talks food plot strategy. And, uh, you know, Tad's background is he, he went to Delaware Valley College in Doylestown, um, I believe, for agronomy. And uh, he does some farming on on his on the side. I think he farms about 200 acres. So just all those things coming together, it just made it a very natural um, gravitate. You know, it made it natural for me to gravitate to Tad and just shoot the bull about everything deer hunting and food plots and farming. And uh, you know, keying back in off of last week's episode where we talked about some of the challenges we're going to face in this upcoming year. Uh, I thought it made sense for Tad to come on and talk about a little bit more in depth on the side of that green manure and that food plots with limited fertilizer availability or expensive fertilizer and, and dig into that a little bit. And uh, I, I'm going to forewarn everybody on this episode, Tad is a very passionate guy and he loves to, to chat about everything whitetails and it was it's like a, a breath of fresh air to hear somebody that just loves to chat and talk about this. But I, I'm not going to lie. Some of you guys, if you're intro food plot level, you're just getting started, there's going to be some farming stuff and some food plot tangents and hunting tangents in our conversation that might be a little bit over your head. And I want to I want to forewarn you that, you know, this podcast might not be your, your cup of tea, but there's definitely some... Uh, 200 level or maybe some 300 level entry talking points when it comes to food plots. And uh, we just kind of dig into some other aspects of deer and deer hunting and wildlife management. And uh, I think it's a conversation that most of you should enjoy. And uh, I, I hope I get an opportunity to have Tad come back because he's a wealth of knowledge. He's He's got a lot of experience and he's, now, he's no stranger to killing uh, good deer in Pennsylvania. Um, he sent me some pictures. We were we were talking back and forth, deer hunting a little bit, and he's uh, he, he can definitely relate the hunt to the habitat and the habitat to the hunt, and that's you know one of the main reasons I wanted to have him on. So sit back, and I hope you really enjoy this week's episode. All right, so here with me tonight, I have Tad Dalgowitz. Tad, did I say your name right? Yes, yes. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people butcher it. People butcher mine, believe it or not, and it's only five letters: shirk, s h i r k. But I get called all ki- shirk, shrek, uh, shrek. You get all kinds of crazy stuff. So, anyway, um, yes. Tad, thanks for coming on tonight. Um, why don't you introduce yourself? My, my name. And you got to love the technical difficulties, as you can tell. Our audio cut in and out with a disconnection there, right as his intro. So you got to love that. But as he said, his name is Tad Dalgowitz, and we'll let him take off from here. I live south of Doylestown. Um, my background information for most people would be uh, agricultural background. I have a four-year degree. I've grown up on farms my whole life, but I have a four-year degree from DelVal College, which is now DelVal University here in Doylestown. Um, And throughout my, how do you say, everyday endeavors of farming and passions for the outdoors, I've um, developed a real strong love for uh, whitetails and food plots. Um, And basically, uh, we were last week at the K&K meeting, Hunter's Night Out, and Mitchell came up to me and says, hey, do you want to do a podcast? I I see you're educated and know something about farming and the food plots. You also work for the Whitetail Institute, and that is correct. I do uh, satellite research and development, or in the past have done it. Things are a little bit uh, anything but normal because of the covid but we've, uh, I talked to the test coordinator actually today in, in Tennessee, and we're going to get back on track here shortly for doing satellite research and development for the Whitetail Institute. And that encompasses anything from attractants to planting seeds and forages to um, uh, anything that involves whitetails and, and food sources and minerals, uh, do's and don'ts with them. Uh, all kinds of feedback from environmental conditions, the rain, uh, drought stress, 
that's a that's a big thing how how the crops can handle that the insects and obviously palatability to the whitetails how do they like it are they hammering it we do controls on all the food plots the test sites so we have a set area that we know how it is growing and then we can judge it off of that and with technology of our cameras and video cameras and stuff we we get a real good analysis of how the deer are reacting to whatever we might be testing so in a nutshell that kind of sums up what i do with the farming nice. food plots work for the whitetail institute and I, I, that's, I, that's my true passion in life is is to be a land steward and work with wildlife and make stuff grow. Absolutely. You and me both. And I think that's what uh, draws us to doing stuff like this and chatting about it with people, sharing your experiences and learning from other people. And that's kind of how we got connected in the first place. Um, you know, I love to share these conversations with people that have that, uh, have that interest, but you know, on the topic of Whitetail Institute products, you know, I've used Whitetail Institute products in the past. And, you know, we were talking about it just the other day. Um, I think you might have even said it when you were chatting in front of the group that, uh, you know, if, if, if you're not planting this um, and your neighbor is, you're going to wish you were kind of deal because it's a great product. And, you know, I've experienced that. Whitetail Institute products definitely have attraction. I've definitely had some some food plots that were just nailed down to the dirt. And, uh, you know, one of the products that you shared with, uh, with the other day was, uh, was kind of a green manure product. And, um, you know, last week I did an episode and we, we talked about some of the struggles that we're going to have here in 2022. Um, the, the, the two things that are going to be a struggle is number one is going to be glyphosate or, or roundup or availability for that and the cost of that. And then the second would be fertilizer, you know, for farmers like you and I, Tad, we, we understand what that is and we understand the process of it. But for somebody who's a food plotter and they have no idea the value or they don't understand the soil chemistry, the way let, let's try to break this down and figure out how we can help people understand what is a green manure and talk a little bit about the whitetail Institute product and what the goal is there. Okay. Uh, well, the, the green manure, uh, Obviously, the green bean, it's a growing vegetation. It's not been a hard pelletized or, or chicken manure, cow manure introduced um, element into our soil. So basically what we're looking to do is do a planting with the, for, you know, the, 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 the vision that in time our planting is somehow going to benefit us in a certain manner. So it's a growing, living fertilizer that we're actually growing and, and going to incorporate or let break down into the soil. And it can benefit you depending on what is growing. And, it, and it, it, there's a lot more to it um, than meets the eye. So to just grow anything, you, you really need to do your homework and pick out varieties of seed that are going to benefit your soil in the best aspect that it can. So being a, a person of foundation, obviously a, a, a food plot enthusiast, a land steward, a farmer, anybody that's working with soil is, is uh, um, acclimated to doing soil tests. And soil tests is what I refer to as a foundation because you know what your soil needs, you know, if you need more uh, phosphorus, potassium, how much nitrogen for corn yields or to push your annuals along that are nitrogen loving. And, and along with that is also important is the pH because the pH of your soil is directly related to the availability of the nutrients that are, you're, you're putting into the soil. So in essence, um, you know, I'm going a little bit farther away from the green manure, but I'm trying to give everybody a good foundation on why we're doing what we're doing and the foundations of knowing and saying, hey, you know, he's a little drawn out, but I'm trying to explain it to everybody so they get a good grasp on what they should be doing. Because green manure, I'm going to be honest with you, is like uh, we're talking – you know, a normal food plot conversation is on an elementary 
level. When we get up to talking about green manure and incorporating that into the soil and different species of, of, of plants and, and seedings and blends of seed to till back into the ground to accomplish either nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, or a multitude of, of, of all of that in a scheme of things, you really got to know what your goals are and to do your soil test, tell you what you are lacking. So then you would go and look and say, hey, uh, you know, I've had clover in this field or I planted soybeans in this field and my nitrogen levels that are in the soil are pretty good. But my, uh, you know, phosphorus and potassium are a little bit lower. My calcium or magnesium levels could be a little bit no, uh, low. And, and look at the the soil analysis and say to ourselves, OK, I want to also have more organics into the soil. Well, organics come from plant material breaking down. It's the corn stalk fodder. It's the soybean fodder, fodder, which means after the combine goes through the field, it's what's left over in the field that's been processed and gone through the flails on the combine and can be incorporated or broken down back into the soil. That's all good stuff. That's organics. It's some nutrients. But this green manure is more so on a higher nutrient level than than your fodder would be and and right. the white whitetail institute has this imperial whitetail revive although yeah, let's talk about the that product a little bit what's what's in that and you know talk about that inter- elementary level you kind of said about like just making sure we understand why you would even plant something like that because it's it's not as much meant for forage even though deer will browse on it but y- yeah let's uh let's get into that okay the, the Revive has been researched, and, and, and like you said, it is a green manure. It, the, the name Revive is putting back and giving back into your, your, your soil composition. And the Revive is broken down into two seeds. It's a sorghum, and it's also a buckwheat. And with the combination of those two, okay, planted accordingly, uh, the recommendations are on most of the bags, planted accordingly and, and tilled into the ground in a fashion that's beneficial to your so- soil, you're looking at in different areas, and I'm just going to give you numbers or, or averages on test ground from the Institute. Okay. So for, for an example, you're going to take and do this planting. And the important thing is, is, you're not really doing a food plot. You're building your soil. So before the plants go to seed, so once you start to see flowering, you want to incorporate it back into the soil. Well, depending on the height, the tillage equipment that you might have, um, it, it'll it'll basically, you got to look at what you have to work with and, and be able to have the foresight and say, hey, okay, I need to incorporate this this green fodder, whether you brush hog it down, whether you plow it directly down into it, you roller crimp, crimp it and disc it in. Uh, there's a whole host of different ways to incorporate this green fodder in, into the soil once it's knocked down and, and, and tilled into the earth and let the composition or decomposition rather take its course. The benefits of uh, we're going to say phosphorus for argument's sake. In the plot that the institute did, you would have pre-test and post-test, and then the actual increase. You're looking at a 29.78 percent increase in phosphorus. Potassium is going up 64.8 percent. Uh, calcium, wow. not as much. Yeah, six percent, and magnesium. It's increasing 48.2%. So on two of the four elements tested, it went up almost or over 50%. Now make sure so I, if make sure I follow you there before I let you go any further. Sorry to cut you off, but are you is that in a soil test? That's a soil test pre and post that it's showing that up, or is that other tests yes. you're saying? No, this is what it's. I'll give you the exact number. So. In, in the Institute's food plot journal that they just are releasing here recently, pre, pre-test, there was 
pre-plant rather, there was 47 pounds per acre of phosphorus present in the soil. After they raised the revive and incorporated it back into the soil and gave it a little bit of time, it, it was analyzed again. It was analyzed at 61 pounds per the acre. So you went from 47 pounds pre-plant to post-plant at 61, which was an increase of almost uh, 30%, 29.78% of phosphorus. So why, why do this? A lot of people are going, well, you know, hey, I can just go to Agway, your local feed mill, granary. Uh, you know, you can go to tractor supply, what you name it. There's a lot of places that make fertilizer available. Okay, well, why revive? Well, there's a lot more to it than what meets the eye. There's a lot of things that go on. People in the whitetail world that are very passionate about it are taking it to the next level every year. And the Institute, by doing this, um, is, is very much on the forefront of being proactive and in, in going in an environmental you know, sound, you know, process that they are trying to keep on pushing the envelope to bring out new stuff, to research and develop stuff that's really, truly beneficial and, 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 and be environmentally conscious. Now, right. by no means are they telling you, hey, forget about, you know, your normal fertilizer, but say for argument's sake, um, you've planted tall pine tubers or you planted their winter greens which is a kale cabbage turnip blend on an overview of what you're looking at is seed it, it is non-beneficial to plant that more than two years on any one piece of ground back to back so for argument's sake you want to rest your ground and do a little build up you could go in the spring once the soil temperature reaches you know about 60 degrees and it's going to hold at that pretty good you go ahead and plant your revive in a month and a half okay you go ahead and say hey my stuff is starting to show signs that this flower what do we need to do here well you got to incorporate it back into the soil knock it down put it back into the soil right you could brush hog it and 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 disc it a couple times to put it back in you could plow it under however you see fit you could brush hog it and and till it with a tiller there's a whole host of different ways to incorporate and processes and depending on what people's equipment is is how you 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 would handle it so in, in essence you know you're putting into the soil that then it's july well what am i going to do for the fall well they have for argument's sakes, their forage oats and do a fall planting of that. The following spring, you can go back in with an annual, perennial, or or later on in the summer, go ahead and put your turnips back in because now you've revived that ground, you gave it a rest period, and, and, and you're incorporating those nutrients back into the soil. And, and you're also adding that organic matter, which helps hold the moisture and those nutrients in the soil. And as long as you're staying up on top of your liming and have a six, we're going to say a six, five to seven, two, seven, seven pH, your nutrient availability to what you have in the soil is, is going to fuel your plants, which in turn wind up in your whitetails. And that, that in itself, if people don't understand the importance of the soil test, the pH and the nutrients, Whatever is in the ground, okay, and you can look at where the biggest whitetails come out of the country in general. It's some of the best fertile ground that we have in the country. Sure. Okay. What's that mean? Well, the nutrients are in the soil. If they're in the soil, that means they're going to get taken up by the plants. And what comes along and browses on the plants? I got a passion for whitetails. Those whitetails are out there. You know, they're in my clover plots. They're nibbling away. I'm making sure that those nutrients are in the ground, which get to the plants, which are growing and, and, and prospering my whitetail, my fawns, the lactating does, 
fawns in utero, your bucks, your, your, your antlers. So the overall benefit of it in the whitetail world is, is it, it's a very, you can tell I'm very passionate, but it's a very elementary foundation that some people try to cheat it. And you can, you can try to do it, but in the long term, because of cost this upcoming year, and availability of fertilizers and and herbicides i I want people to understand i'm referred to i as myself a tool if you don't ask questions and you don't get me dirty i can't do my job (laughs) so in essence you're going to build a a a soil foundation which fuels your plants and fuels your whitetails what do you think is going to happen in in a couple years worth of time well if you can lay out the trigger and your goal is to have, you know, good genetics and you manage your herd, I mean, the sky's the limit. I'm not promising you anything, but I will be very punctual in saying you will be surprised at the results that you see. And the reason that we do use the Institute stuff is because their time and their dedication to the whitetail industry and their sole passion for the whitetails and their research and development for the seeds and proprietary seeds that they do have. There's so all things that are really true. And there's, that was a lot to digest and it's all great information. I appreciate you just letting it roll tad. Um, I want to, I want to go back a little bit. So you talked about, um, you talked about the green manure you talked about the soil test. You've had a 30% increase in some of those macronutrients, the P and the K, and that's big. And you and I have a pretty good understanding of, first of all, where that's coming from. So right. most people think, well, how are you building the fertility if the soil tests and there's no other fertilizer applied? And yes, we know there's green manure, but how is it just miraculously going up through plant matter? And I, th- I think that what you got to understand is, you know, for everybody that's listening, is when you pull out green plant matter and you've got, you know... How, First of all, how how tall does that sorghum and buckwheat get, mix get as it approaches that anthesis, that mature, that maturation time? Okay, as it develops and in, in, in reaches maturation, which is what we're referring to as it's going to flower. Okay, anytime you see that, see that, that's a very important a term in, in observation in the food plot world. In, in this case, we're looking at something before it goes to actual seed because what we're trying to do is build up and increase the soil okay and the nutrients and the organic matter but by not letting it go to seed okay we're not introducing any new seed source competition into our food plot and we're breaking the the, it's the, the the sorghum and the buckwheat's life chain before it completes its life cycle. So it's still got a lot of nutrients and viability in the stems, in the leaves that it has. Now, different plants, and we're going to say for argument's sake, there are people that use clover. uh, There's people that use cover crop rye, aerial radishes with, with a whole different, you know, agenda of, of, soil retention in a time of the year that so you don't lose any soil with the erosion but the the nutrient thing is also a very viable thing and that's another thing that revive offers if you're working up the ground it has roots that establish so if you have downpours and gosh knows lately in in eastern pennsylvania we've had our fair share of tornadoes and, and and rainstorms like we've never seen in the past this past year right um you want to try to do and be a a, a, an agronomist and and look at your soils and cherish that you do have good soils and do your utmost to have and retain your soils and your organic matter so you're having a green living basically manure fertilizer and you're going to reincorporate that back into your ground and and basically that's the importance of, of of the revived product um and it, it's it's a new thing for the whitetail in, in industry um not so much for agriculture because for many years there's been cover crops being used 
but they're looking at, hey, it's beneficial for farming. We're going to take it to the next level, and we're going to introduce this to the food plot world. Exactly, and I think that's one thing that's uh, we're. I feel like everything in hunting is slowed slowed it, but I think you hit that on the head because um, first of all, that green manure while you're not adding fertilizer than seed those roots are mining nutrients from deeper than what that soil test is actually on and it's pulling them up to the surface and as that that plant gets killed then it's releasing it and that's where you're getting that increase in fertility levels now a, a lot of people want to say well okay so if i'm planting food plots then why isn't that happening and i think you have to realize that when you plant a plant and it gets removed, whether in farming, you know, for you and I, that would be from a harvester, or if it's deer that are harvesting that rich, nutrient-dense plant, it's removing it, and the deer just has to step a little bit out of the field, and if it doesn't release those nutrients back into that soil, then those nutrients are pulled from the soil. So, you know, we talked about planting tall time tubers and those winter cover crops, and there's like a a disconnect or like a a complete 180 when it comes to food plots and farming because farming we're doing uh, corn soybeans um, in a summer growing season and that's where we're getting that we're taking it off in the fall and for food plots while we can plant summer annuals for a food plot a lot of the time our food plot focus goes into those fall annuals and having enough food in the in the uh, the latter part of the year so Correct. deer are harvesting your food plot in a fall food plot, and they're pulling those nutrients out, and you don't have anything growing in the springtime. You're you're doing your soils no justice, and that's exactly what you uh, just, just hit the, the nail on the head on. I just kind of wanted to backtrack a little bit there. Yeah, and it's very important. If, if you want to be as cutting edge and proactive as you can, for your white tails and everything, you know, this is not something that you do on the farm and do the whole farm in at once. It, it, it's, it's very beneficial to use it, but it's, it's very good to sit down and have the foresight of, you know, two to three years out from now, the food plots that we do have, where do we want to go with them? We want to rotate them. We want to, anytime you have something in the ground, a year and year and year after when you work from something that's considered like virgin ground or ground that hasn't been farmed or old uh, fallow hay fields that have been just brush hogged year after year, all the old matter is getting brush hogged and it drops down and it's getting broken down and rotted back into the soil. And that's so all free nutrients. That's free nutrients. But in a hay situation where you got that disc bind and it's cutting, you know, at two to three inches across the top of the ground, two to three cuttings a year, and there's nothing left there to drop down, to break down, to rot down, we're, we're really exercising that ground. So on those cases, you know, a chemical fertilizer with your nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and, 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 and having micros mixed up in with that, it's very important that it does get that, you know, broadcast granular fertilizer on those fields to keep up with the soils so we don't ex- exercise it out and we can have good yields. We, that's, that's the whole name of the game. You've got to have the nutrients to push the plants to get the yield. Well, it's the same right. thing in fruit plots. You want to have that tonnage. Why do you want tonnage? Well, a whitetail, for argument's sake, is going to eat – eight pounds of forage a day, okay? Eight pounds, if you have three animals, okay, you do the math. You know what, you know, 20, 24 pounds, okay, a day for those three mature animals is, is what's getting taken off. You have 10 animals out there, you're talking 80 pounds, and say you have an acre food plot. Well, if you don't fertilize it, plant it at the proper time so it gets the lifespan that it needs to, to push the forages, your groceries are going to be slim to nil come hunting season. And for attractability going into the fall, you're looking at the fall as a point in time where you're asking an awful lot out of something because your day length, your soil temperature, 
your your environmental factors become extremely limiting for growth going into the fall. So as land storage whitetail enthusiasts, what you have to have the foresight is is the perennials and some annuals throughout the summer to take care of your animals that first green up to give them the best nutritional browser forages that we can. But we also want to concentrate on looking into the fall and, hey, are we going to let sorghum, corn, soybeans stand? Can we use brassicas? Can we use turnips? How can we increase and get the most tonnage going into the fall, into those winter months, when the natural flora in our landscape has been frosted off? And, and, and is and it, under normal circumstances, a deer's limited to twigs and, and, and buds and, you know, some grass here or there. The nutritional value, the protein of that is minimal. They're going to get through as long as it's ample and it doesn't get locked into the ground by snow and ice storms. But what we're looking at is the fall forages and and, and a food source to go longer in the fall to reduce any stress on our whitetails. And and that's what we're going to have. You know, hey, I I shoot a doe at the dresses at 90 pounds. Two, Two, three years into the program, we're shooting good mature does. Our does are dressing out at a buck 20, okay? 120 pounds. Well, you know what that means for your freezer. (laughs) You're going to have a lot more freezer space taken up because you're going to be able to fill your freezer. And and there's a lot of people, okay, that that's their goal. Some people don't want, and and I'm a little bit biased because I have my goal. But when, when I do food plot seminars and try to teach people, I encourage people to do what their heart desires, what they envision. If they envision, hey, I got five kids, I need to put, you know, I can get my doe tags or DMAP tags in Pennsylvania, and and I can manage my herd, but I need to do fall food plots so I can fill my freezer so my family has food this winter. That's their goal, okay? Then you have some people, you know, you have a, a, a young fella in his 20s, and he's got caught up on you know the outdoor channel and sees the deer that they're harvesting in the midwest and goes you know this is a passion of mine and maybe your your grandfather or your father has a place a camp and they got a couple hundred acres and hey what we what can we do to start a program where we can look at food plots and, and start doing habitat improvement to make things better to attract more deer um if if you have a will that says i can and you're going to have obstacles, but if you have a positive attitude and, and, and a little bit of knowledge of what is out there for, you know, us to utilize here in this in this state, I mean, you can really do some phenomenal things. I have, uh, I don't want to get wild and crazy on you, but I've harvested deer that I'll, I'll shed hunt at this point in time of the year. And I found sheds at a year and a half, at two and a half, and I've harvested bucks upstate, which what I would consider a mountain deer, not an agricultural area, but a, a large timber and without any mass crop, meaning there's no acorns there, okay? Right. In an area that has some beech nuts, uh, a lot of berries, but we're having a mass crop as in beech nuts and hickories or anything else. And in in uh, uh, oaks, rather the oaks is the biggest thing for our mass crop. Having no oak in in our vocabulary, meaning it doesn't exist in our woods, and we have ten thousand acres of state game lands around us, and there's not one oak tree. Well, I lie. I put two hundred on on our farm, and I introduced them to the area, and they're in tubes, and I'm trying to, you know, be persistent and keep on fixing the tubes because the bears break them down. But be proactive and have I can and the willpower, you know, the food plots that you can attract deer, hold deer, and have a better deer herd and a healthier deer herd that can withstand environmental conditions. And there's a lot of obstacles that whitetails have, but reducing any food stress and and pushing that later on into the fall season is, is 
very, very important. Very important. Certainly is. And, you know, the, the demand of, uh, the demand of fertilizer and stuff that you were talking about is, uh, you know, we have, we have some problems going on right now. Thankfully, when you're comparing farming to food plots, we don't have quite the demand of fertility that we have in very high production, high yielding situations in farming. But we still have some concerns here this year. And, and let's scale back to that conversation of of this year. So the, the short term outlook right now is fertilizer prices are high. And uh, I mean, what what have you been hearing as far as fertilizer prices, Tad? Okay, uh, very good. I, I did a little bit of homework today. I farmed 200 acres in, in corn and soybeans, basically a split down the center saying 100 acres of corn and 100 acres of soybeans. So I have to be pretty in tune with fertilizer costs, with, with herbicide costs, liming costs. And I reached out to a local supplier, agricultural supplier, out east, out east here, uh, Growmark is an industry staple i mean they are very big throughout the the northeast here you know anywhere you go from you know delaware maryland virginia pennsylvania new jersey new york ohio i mean you're going to find grow market it's it's an agricultural staple and uh, a bunch of good guys and you know they want they want us to be profitable (laughs) And the guys are like, geez, we really don't want to scare you. We don't want to tell you the prices. But if you would say, uh, all right, without spitting out any numbers, and I will, our availability for a ton of fertilizer from last year to this year is going to be very restricted to some extent. It's going to be out there. But if you have the foresight that you're going to do food plots and want to be Uh, proactive you want to do your soil test as soon as possible you want to get your fertilizer now why do you want to do that well availability is going to be a a a issue uh i know last year it held me up two weeks where in past we've been very fortunate and it's been on demand hey you pick up the phone hey i can have the truck down you know tomorrow and the spreader, the spreading truck come in and we can blast out that hundred acres of corn for you. Uh, and your starter fertilizer, it went to, well, we're looking at the end of the month and that's, you know, two to three weeks from now. Right. And that's going to be a very real thing is what they're saying. Along with that. Okay. Last year, I'm just going to pick a number. I can't speak for everywhere. In, in Pennsylvania, throughout the country, but the cost of fertilizer is going to double and probably go more than a double. It's not probably, hopefully, it's not going to triple, but it's going to double. So a, a, a ton of, of fertilizer last. Yeah. Yeah. Just to give you a number, uh, I mean, a ton of fertilizer last year, we're going to say was going for five, five fifty. Okay. Right today, that same ton of fertilizer is just under a thousand dollars, and he says it, it doesn't look like it's going to get any better. It's going to keep on going up past the, that that price and keep on going. So, sure. in actuality, what we were if we were spending the dollar last year, you, you might be spending two twenty five to two fifty, and then that's if you can find the stuff and it's available when you. You go to get it. I've already started getting fertilizer and anything I do know with the glyophosphate chemistry, um, meaning your active ingredient in Roundup is glyophosphate. Uh, it's present in, in that chemistry is present in, in Liberty chemicals, which are also have a, 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 a makeup of, of the glyophosphate in it. Those chemicals are going to do the same thing. They're going to be in very limited quantities. Right now, there is stuff out there. It's on limited quantities, but it's priced from on a farming agricultural supply in bulk tanks last year being 15 to $18 a gallon is going to be 45 to $50 a gallon this year. Mm. 
Yeah, so, that's going to be a major problem when it comes to talking about implementing food plots this year. Now, the quality and the fertilizer, the, the quality of the soil and the fertilizer is all important. But a lot of food plotters are going to hear that, and they're going to probably cringe and think they can get. Now, thankfully, you know, you talked about the green manure aspect, and there are some short-term benefits to it. I think those numbers you shared with us were pretty staggering, and that can have a direct impact this year. Now, right. Now the uh, if you don't mind, let's let's shift gears for just a second, and let's look at for anybody implementing. You know, this is a situation where you're planting an annual, and then you're going to be coming back, and you're going to be planting an annual like tall tine tubers or something like that in the fall. So let's talk about how you know all, all this theoretical stuff is great how are we going to implement this from somebody like me who i use a tractor and a drill to plant food plots i actually dabble a little bit with a crimper and trying to keep that fodder on the top of the of the soil how are we how how can somebody like me versus somebody that they literally have a backpack sprayer uh, and and a lawnmower, and maybe they've got a tiller, maybe they've got an ATV with a disc behind it. Can you just talk about how you see in your mind as being a great way to implement this system this year and be cutting back on fertilizer and hopefully be cutting back on glyphosate? Right. Well, that's 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 important stuff. Um, you know, you got to follow on your glyphosate your your recommendations on your bottles be well rehearsed read the precautionary statements and and i, I won't go into a, a a herbicide seminar but that's very important i just for record i have two applicator private applicators licenses that i keep up with in two different states for farming practices one for new jersey and one for pennsylvania so you have to stay in on top of your credits, your core credits and, and stuff for your, your applicator's license. So um, by no means is that supposed to be intimidating for anybody. For most of your food plot enthusiasts, applicator license are, are, are not necessary. Over the counter is where you're going to be purchasing your herbicides. So that, that I don't want to scare anybody, but to give me some credibility I do have two licenses with that and, and the importance of that. In some aspects, you're not going to get away from uh, herbicide use. Right. Although, if you have a drill, if you have minimal stuff, it, it, uh, it, it becomes you know necessary to use in some applications your herbicides. If you're on your end, um, there's a lot of stuff out there and, and – there's a lot of great information on plantings, going over the top of them, letting them expire, and, and planting new forages over the top of other forages to build up the soils on a natural accountability with some whitetail appeal. That, that is going to benefit your soils. It's going to give you fertilizer, the green manure factor, the organics. Is it going to be your utmost and, and most productive and highest yielding tonnage forge that's out there? I don't think so in most cases, but if, if a herd is managed properly and, and, and your numbers are okay and you have enough acreage to do what you need to do in, in, in your food plots, you, you can accomplish an awful lot. But in, in a case where like you have a drill on the back of a tractor, you could work up the ground this spring early and plant a cover crop of oats and your primary goal is to have a fall food plot you wait until the oats brown out and going into the fall months you could go ahead and take your conservation drill on the back of your tractor and drill right through your brown tops or crimp it i would suggest just leaving it right up and run your drill with your your, your Winter greens, your tall pine tubers, your brassicas, turnips, whatever you decide, calibrate your, your cedar so it's doing what it needs to, not putting it too deep, and, and go ahead and do your planting. When you're talking about somebody that's got more of a, uh, of a beginner uh, type setup with your four-wheeler, 
Maybe they have a drag behind this. Um, there's going to be a couple things that you, you, you're going to want to look at. And green manure is a viable thing, but it's going to curtail your equipment is going to curtail what you can and can't do and give right. you limitations. So Residue the green manure, like I said, is on, on, on the college level and not on the elementary level of food plots. So getting back to the basic stuff, which, you know, a lot of guys just have that you're going to need to somehow burn off those plots. And the important thing is you're going to want to do that in a timely fashion that it allows, if you're dealing with a fallow field, you're going to want to mow that down. Okay. And in some cases burning in, in, in that is a viable thing. I have done burns on, on fallow fields and done perimeter disking and had a water tank on a truck and all that kind of good stuff. And you have to check with your local ordinances to, to accomplish that kind of, you know, pass and check with you know your fire department and they'll be able to say yay or nay or here's what we expect of you to do give us a call and do whatever but uh burning is a very viable thing but getting back to the herbicides and having smaller equipment it's very important to have something that that's going to be workable if i gave you a disc on the back of a four-wheeler and you went and sprayed two weeks earlier with glyophosphate and killed it off and it looked dead and you go in there and try to work up that that root mass and everything you're going to come back to me and say hey this isn't working it's really satchy my disc is bouncing all over the the root structure's still there and it's going to be really you know uh, a a real labor chore to really work that ground up in a uniform seed bed and if you would go out in a month and a half or a month earlier and go ahead and use that glyophosphate application where you knock out the vegetation and you let it sit there and you let it rot and really break down almost to the point where it looks like bare soil out there and then go with your disc, you, you, your, how do you say, overall outcome with effort level is going to be a lot quicker knowing the proper way to do something to accomplish it but it's not going to be an overnight kind of thing you have to be planning and have the foresight or you know talk to a person that has the experience and say hey here's what my equipment is i mean not everybody has a cultipacker not everybody has a chain drag i've been up at buddy's hunting camps where we've gone through and dissed up with a cutaway disc the whole field killed it off a month before dissed off the whole field and in july we're up there with a ranger i said guys we need to firm up the seed bed we just can't go and broadcast our our, our winter greens or our tall pine tubers out here because we have nooks and crannies and, and people go well, well what's the difference it's going to fall in i said well the problem is is when you have a field like that and you get a nice big rainstorm your seed bed has to be uniformed uh, a rapeseed is very minuscule, maybe about the size of number eight shot, okay? And that little seed doesn't want to be in the ground more than an eighth of an inch. Well, if you have these big nooks and crannies and you got a, a, a rainstorm that comes in and it gets buried three to four inches down and some stuff sits up on top, you have a, a circumstance where you're going to have stuff start to germinate, but some stuff's going to break through in a week some stuff's going to take two to three weeks and if you have a seed bed prep like that it's it, it's very how do you say not advantageous to have different germination times and why is that well the main reason is in the soil there is a seed bank of undesirable seeds that is persistent and, and is rid is a rigid yeah its residue is there those seeds are there Okay. Even though we don't see them, it doesn't look like they're there. They are viable seeds in our soil for many, many years. You can kill it off, cut it off, so nothing goes to seed for the next or goes to flower, which goes to seed for the next ten years in in a field. Plow it under and let it sit there for a couple of weeks, 
and it'll start to green up again. Why is that? Because of the natural seed bank of seeds that lay dormant for years upon years become there. Well, the reason I'm saying that is, is if you have seeds that aren't germinating at the same time, flushing out, causing a canopy above the soil, you're leaving room for competition in your food plot. So you've got to be well rehearsed in in what you're doing and and have the foresight and a little insight in in proper seedbed preparation. So you're going to drag it out, make it nice and uniform, flat as possible, so you can do a viable food plot that's going to be productive, that you're going to look out and say, hey, this resembles what I saw on the, the TV commercial or what I saw on the the outdoor channel, these guys hunting over a turnip patch or, you know, what's on the seed bag, it, what you envision becomes what you want it to. And that's, a you know, in today's day and age, what's available to learn and pick up from other people's knowledge. And I've learned through the school of hard knocks and a lot of experimentation on my own where I've done things that have failed. And that's a viable po- part of learning. And, and for small vehicles, you're you're going to have to look at what you have, and and do that uh, accordingly. So maybe what I'm saying, Mitchell, is with your small equipment, the revive, in my opinion, okay, maybe not be the best product for a person that's just starting and and becoming a a um a, 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 we'll say a newbie or on the elementary level and not on a, how do you say, negative connotation, but more or less it's based on just somebody who's starting out and they, they got to get their feet wet. And, and we're here to, you know, to help them along the way. So maybe the, the, the smaller equipment isn't going to be the best with the revive or cover crop, but I'm not saying you can't do it or you can't use it, but to build it up and be more environmentally sound, the larger equipment and the conservation planners sure do add to a whole new dimension versus the small time guy. He can do the revive, but his his accomplishment of trying to disc it in with a a, a small AT, ATVV uh, disc is he's going to have his hands full. And I think I want to be a person that can paint people a picture and then be, um, you you know, have very good experiences with what I'm trying to teach them and not have an experience which is marginal and and not successful. I want my my students or people that are at my classes where I'm teaching, I want to try to be upfront with them, even though it's not exactly what they might want to hear. I tried to give them the do's and the don'ts, the school of hard knock education that I have so that they can be successful. And we look at what they want to do and say, hey, here's what I think you can do. This is the effort. This is what you need to do for fertilizer. And a lot of times, because that's how I started off, you develop and you keep on growing and growing and growing. I was not an overnight success. I was the same person had a four-wheeler, had a chain-link fence, and I got a piece of old galvanized pipe out of a scrapyard, wired it up, and, and made my own drag, and, and bought a, a disc at a yard sale and had a putt-putt two-cylinder, you know, gas-operated tractor. Now, you know, things are a lot different 30 years later. I have a lot more equipment and, and stuff, and I've had a lot of help along the way. In, in, a, in a different circumstance with the, the, the planning of the revive and the, the true essence of the green manure, um, you know, is, is a point where it might be on that next level for elementary people. And, you know, for beginners, the smaller stuff, the granular fertilizer and that applications might be in turn a better avenue to get your feet wet, to get yourself to have success. If that makes it, <laughs> that makes it, that makes a ton of sense. And uh, like I said, you know, we're all about here at this uh, this podcast. We're all about trying to 
give the best information we can and try to dissect, you know, your your goals and try to, you know, put these these practices into place in a successful way. Um, and, you know, I think the biggest thing I take away and I think people should take away from that um, is residue management. You know, you're talking about trying to break up large clods if it's too thick with the, the small equipment residue management. So if you're somebody listening to this and you have small equipment, but you're just uh, hell bent and determined that you're going to try this somehow, some way, I think your avenue would be a lighter seating rate to, to get wet because you're going to over overwhelm yourself with a very heavy seeding rate and a really, really thick amount of material on the top. Right. Agreed. Oh, man. Hey, well, we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff here, Tad, and I think we covered a lot of the topics that I had, uh, I had wanted to chat about with you. Is there anything else from Whitetail Institute or anything else in this upcoming food plot planning season uh, you'd like to share with us before you go? Um, no, I mean, there, like I said, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, just as words for people that are listening and kind of getting their, their directions, don't be discouraged. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions to reach out to, you know, your, your local granaries. And, and, and the only dumb question is the question that you don't ask. You be, don't be afraid um, be well rehearsed, read about stuff. Don't be intimidated. There's a lot of people that are very passionate about the being land stewards and whitetail enthusiasts and food plot, uh, have a passion for the food plot industry and, and managing their wildlife with that. And, you know, it's, it's all real important. It's a re- real important stuff. I'm not going to bad mouth, um, anybody's other seed companies. I will just boast on the Whitetails Institute and, and why I do think that you look at their track record, you look at what their foundation is, how many years Ray Scott, the founder of Bassmaster Classic, was the founder of the Whitetail Institute. His sole quest was to, de- to have developed a food source that was superior to anybody else's, okay, and for a lot of different reasons. In Till today, one of his first first seeds was the Imperial Whitetail Clover. Okay, I believe it's an '88. It that that came out in the Institute's uh, lineup when they first you know hit the market. Okay, there was another couple seed companies out there at that time. Who started when? There's always a little bit of bickering. You have Tecamani and you had um, Biologic at the same point in time. Who started when? I'm not here to to argue that, but those are three of the forefront uh, seed companies involved with whitetail and quality whitetail seeds. And we're, we're, we're dealing with whitetail, so I encourage people to follow that train of thought. There's other ways to cut corners. There's other ways to do different things. But remember, if if my words of advice to people are, Give the Imperial Whitetail Clover or their stuff a shot. I said, just, you know, you don't have to plant the whole farm in it, but just give it a shot. Put us up against something else or whatever you've had success with or whatever you might think might be the best and give us a shot. And in a lot of cases, I can't tell you how many people have come back to me in subsequent years and say, hey, I gave the Clover a shot. Man, they're just stacked up in there like i can't believe i shot my first brock on my own property you know my kid got his first deer you know that's what it's all about experiences enjoying the creation and and really embracing it and that's why i'm passionate about the whitetail industry the whitetail imperial products um and and i've had a tremendous amount of success with them and uh you know it in, in further conversations or casts, maybe we can discuss other topics. Um, but I encourage people to be inquisitive and do the research and be persistent and have a will. I will, and I will succeed attitude. And, you know, though, though at the end of it all, it, it'll come, come, come out to be beneficial for, you know, the enthusiasts that are, are, are dedicated to it. 
Without a doubt, man. And uh, you and I both share that passion. So I, th- I thank you for sharing your knowledge and uh, and all that great information with us. And hopefully it's something that we can apply, uh, any of our listeners can apply to this year. Excellent. Excellent. Well, hey, I appreciate your time tonight. Likewise, man. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to get back on hopefully with uh, with a big buck success story or something along those <laughs> lines, or maybe a bear story where you can get rid of some of those bear that are eating your, your apple trees and your, your, your tree plantings. Yeah, well, uh, I've been very fortunate uh, with the food plots in Pennsylvania that I've, I, I've harvested several Pennsylvania black bears in, in, in past years, and it's been uh, my first one was on a, on a push, but the other ones have have been sitting over uh, cornfields and in basically sitting on properties where you've had cornfields and harvested them. Then, but yeah, my true passion is the whitetails. The the bears are just destructive, and the, I, I said you know they have their 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 place in in the environment, but <laughs> as I look at them, they're they're big nuisance for me. Well, hey, that sounds like another episode in the making. So I'll let you go this evening. So thanks for coming on. All right, Mitchell. I appreciate you. Thank you. Take care, Tad. Bye-bye.